looking at you, kid. That's the rumor. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Get away from her, you bitch! I'll have what she's having. You move, Chief. I am poor my whole life. Not true. I'm going to kill you in one minute, man. That is extremely rude. Funny how. You can't handle the truth! Not, not quite my temple. Is this your homework, Larry? This messes it up yours. Where I'm from. No fighting. And here we go. Okay, hey everybody. Welcome back to This Is Reviewable, where we review movies, TV shows, books, and video games. And life. My name's Micah, and this is... Brayden. My um, guest. Yeah. Yeah, just kidding. I'm just a guest. No, he's the co-host. So we're just going to be talking about this movie that we watched the other night. It's called mm-hmm. Austin Land. Mm-hmm. So it was our friend's birthday the other night, and she had two requests. Turkey for dinner uh-huh. and to watch Austin Land. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we watched it. So we were ready for this like a week in advance or more. Was it a, a week? Yeah, because we went over there for New Year's. And then she said, okay, we're going to watch this next week on Saturday. I'm like, oh, can't we watch something else? Yeah. <laughs> she was like, no, we have to watch this. Yeah. Okay, fine. And then, after the movie was ended, she was like, you guys better review this or else I'm going to be mad. Yeah, we weren't even planning to review it. It was (laughs) just going to be like, you know, like we watched it and that's it. And we're just going to let it slide. Happy birthday. Brush it under the carpet, you know, (laughs) under the bridge, whatever. Um, Yeah, happy birthday. To our friend. This undisclosed friend. You want to tell the people what the movie's about? Yeah, okay. So, this is what I wrote. Obsessed Jane Austen lady. Uh, I put the new horse girl in in yep. parentheses, question mark. Goes on a trip to a LARPing Austen retreat. She hopes to find love, I guess, or at least a chance to live in the world that she has come to know through Jane Austen's writings. During her trip, she's treated like a peasant, dares to find romance, and learns some of the classic lessons from Austen's novels along the way. Pretty good? Yeah. All right. What do you like about it? Um, well, so I think I've read this book. I think it's based on a book. And I'm pretty sure I've read this book before, like a really long time ago. Wouldn't that be funny if this was like a movie tie-in book and you didn't realize that you were reading a movie tie-in book? You've, ever, you've never seen those? Like they made a novelization of the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, for example. And I read this when I was a kid. Oh, so, where like they made the movie and then someone wrote a and book about it? And then someone wrote a novel about it. Oh. What if that's what this was and you didn't even realize it, you big nerd? <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? That'd be so embarrassing. <laughs> I had to like look up online the difference between the book and the movie because I knew that there were some differences, but I just couldn't remember because it's been so long since I read the book. Right, yeah. One being like full of pages and the other one being a visual more arts. digital format. Yeah. Yeah. And so, apparently, so the main character, her name is Jane, and, you know, she's obsessed with the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, which, if you've ever seen it, six hours. Oh, that's the six-hour one. the six-hour one. The one with Colin Firth is six Uh hours. Wow. And growing up, every holiday or, like, every break, we would watch it. Oh, you would? In my family, yeah. So, like, Christmas break, we would watch, like, one episode a night, because, like, each one is, like, an hour long. Something. Oh, it's a mini series. Yeah. Okay. I think it was like one of the first of its kind, basically, because it came out a long time ago, mm-hmm. like a mini series. 
And so in the movie, Jane basically blows her whole savings on this uh, immersive experience. Yeah. And in the book, her like rich aunt or something gifts her this experience, just knowing that she really likes um, Jane Austen and yeah, um, Mr. Darcy. Yeah, you know what? That's something that's kind of weird about this movie is they make a really big deal about saying that she spent her savings on this, but they don't ever really do anything with it. Like, it doesn't seem like it's an actual problem. Yeah. Like, she'll, she'll, she comes back and nothing nothing is different. She still has a job. It's not like she's struggling to pay the bills or anything. Yeah. She, you know, she just splurges on this thing, and they, make it, they, like, go out of their way to, like, say, oh, no, she's spending all this money, but then no adverse yeah. effects, you know, fall yeah well and it's so funny because she spends her whole life savings on this trip and she gets there and it turns out that she bought the lowest of the low packages yeah and there's two other women on this trip yeah guests experience yeah the host lady the one the manager i guess she's like jane just so you know you and she's like holding out all these different package options there's Mm -hmm. like four she's like you bought this experience and it's like a brown yeah, paper bag, basically. It's very like, here are all the experience packages. You bought this one and fuck you. It's <laughs> <laughs> basically what that you encounter is broke like. broke ass bitch. This is the one that you get and you get to sleep in the servant's quarters. Yep. And then she's like, but the other women bought the diamond, platinum, gold encrusted package. And you're going to be missing out if you don't upgrade. And she's like, no, I'm fine. And then, like, they're getting ready to, like, from the airport, they get picked up from the airport and go to this house. And at the house, they get ready to go to the mansion Mm -hmm. where they'll be in this immersive experience. Yeah. And so at the first house, everyone's getting ready and Jane is getting put in, I don't know, a potato sack, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And the other women are having, like... Very itchy, very scratchy. Yeah. Yeah. And the other women are getting, like, they're, like weaving the silk putting them on like these dresses on these women right like giving them wigs and all this stuff and then jane has like the ugliest ringlets you've ever seen yeah and like oh and the lady that's getting jane dressed is like yanking her hair (laughs) to get it ready (laughs) yeah oh it's just funny and then they get to the house and start this She's probably like experience. She's probably like the dedicated stylist for the bronze package member, the copper package yeah. members, and she's like, she's like a convict <laughs> that got thrown in there for assaulting people, and she just loves to cause harm. Oh man! And there's like no reason. You look over, and the lady is just yanking on her hair. Yeah. For no reason. Yeah. What did you like? I wrote this down. We have a friend who is a pain merchant, and what I mean by that is he loves watching cringe movies and he's shown us a couple of like basically sat us down and made us watch some of these cringe movies um at least three but i can name two of them i can't remember the name of the third one that i know we've watched with him but we watched uh so i married an axe murderer which honestly not that great of a movie but like really quotable yeah i was not a fan though like you guys you guys liked it a lot more than me well What's his name? Michael Myers? Yeah, Michael Myers. He, he makes me feel so uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't like him as a, an actor. So we watched that, and then he, for his birthday, he made us watch Flash Gordon. And Flash Gordon is 
just awful. Like, if if you like cringe movies, that goofy old sci-fi movies, watch this, I guess. But if you don't, if you're more, you know, more you're not than, missing out. Yeah, you're not missing out at all. I really hated it. So when our friend told us that we were going to be watching Austin Land, I was getting ready for something like Flash Gordon. Well, and we were thinking, man, we need to stop going to people's birthday parties. Right, and it, I was like, this is going to be a Hallmark movie, isn't it? I'm going to hate it. Um, I actually liked it a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah. So that was a very pleasant surprise. Well, this... And I think because it doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah. It yeah. kind of makes fun of itself, but also like moves the story along and like the story's not yeah. horrible. It's not great, but it's not horrible. Yeah. If I rewatched this, I would probably like it less if, if I'm guessing. But I think just because I didn't hate it that was a huge plus for me mm-hmm. that like almost propelled it into the, I like it category. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, other things. So it's, it's kind of a fun story and a fun premise, you know? And like, I was thinking about this just barely as you were talking. So this woman owns this massive estate in England, which is huge. Yeah. It's a, it's a mansion. I can't even imagine how expensive that is yeah. to have, but like, you know, good idea for her. You know, she's got this Downton Abbey, castle what do you do with it yeah well let's turn it into this big old austin larping experience pretty clever you know good idea um there's some funny moments there's a a character that plays one of the um one of the love interests and his name is colonel something i'm just gonna call him colonel brandon because that's what i remember from sense and sensibility oh mr nobly no not mr nobly no, the the other guy, the really flamboyant one. Oh, the guy with the mustache. Yeah, he's pretty yeah. funny. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I like he delivers his lines pretty well. Um, Mr. Nobly also does a pretty good job. Um, he's basically just a Darcy clone. Yeah. Okay, so this is a little bit of an interesting one. I'm not sure if this is a positive. It's on the verge of being a negative. I put I liked question mark Jennifer Coolidge question mark. Is that who plays Jane? No, that's the friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I put a question mark after Jennifer Coolidge. It's definitely her. <laughs> but, like, I'm not sure if I liked her character. Like, I appreciate Jane needing to have a friend in this sort of hostile environment where she's being treated like a sack of potatoes, like you said, in the burlap sack dress. Um, but I'm a little tired of seeing her in... It seems like she's popping up everywhere. Um, cause I watched, well, that's because you watched stuff recently that has her, in I it. guess. Yeah. Cause w- Britain watched legally blonde recently and she's the exact same character yeah, in, in that. But that movie. didn't come out recently. That's no. Like, what from the nineties? No, but I have been seeing all these insurance commercials with her in them and she plays the exact same clueless ditzy version of herself. But she does such a good job at it. That's yeah, she does, but that's all she does. So like, I don't know. It, it's a tentative plus. Yeah. Well, one thing that's really sad, so this movie came out in, like, the early 2000s, I think, and... This one? Yeah. No, this is, like, 2013. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, like, in the 10s. And what's her name? Jennifer Coolidge? Yeah. She has not... She's had a lot more work done on her face since this movie, which is too bad, because, honestly, she's kind of pretty in this. Like, her face is Uh. pretty. Yeah. Compared to now. Because she's had so much work done okay. on her face. I gotcha. Which is sad. She has not aged gracefully, you're no. saying. Yeah. She's aged with 
plastic surgery. Yeah. I will say, though, she does seem like a girl's girl in this movie. What do you mean? Because she, like, immediately becomes friends with Jane. She's super ditzy. But, like, as soon as Jane... As soon as Jane is like, I want to take control of my experience here, mm-hmm. um, Jennifer Coolidge is like, but steals all these dresses for her yeah. and gives her all this makeup to help make her feel pretty yeah. and like take control of her experience. And then just is like her friend the whole time. Yeah. She feel like she's a girl's girl in this. Right. That's, that's what I wrote for positives. It's, it's okay. all... I have dislikes that I can well, share. There were some parts in this movie that I think that they pulled exactly from Pride and Prejudice and they did a really good job. Like, do you remember in Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth goes off on Mr. Darcy at the ball? Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, Oh yeah. The banter that they're having uh-huh. where, where she's very sharp tongued. Uh-huh. Yeah. I actually thought that it was done much better in Pride and Prejudice. No, it was, but they pulled it that that sort of thing thing and put it in here and it's a little subtle i felt like like if you had a little bit like if you hadn't seen pride and prejudice you wouldn't know you have to know that that's what they do in pride and prejudice but when you do it's definitely not subtle yeah yeah it's it's subtle for the person who's never read it yeah or watched the i appreciated it though okay when they're at dinner and she kind of like snippy with him yeah in austin land snooty (laughs) snotty the other thing that i liked was so the uh, these three women come to this experience as Uh guests and there's these love interests that the experience provides to them yeah and they're just actors and throughout the movie they have these moments of like looking backstage quote unquote where they're like hanging out at the pool and like they're all in swimsuits like because they're all in period timed costumes and then now they're like off the clock and like Mm -hmm. hanging out and they only have one outlet to plug in a tv or something like that i thought that some of those interactions were kind of fun yeah yeah no yeah this like this movie isn't just it doesn't miss the mark on everything that it's trying like it's it's funny sometimes it's fun sometimes so it's definitely not it has a pretty low yeah it's like score it was fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and then like thirty percent and... on something else. Oh yeah, I, yeah, it's not that bad. Definitely not that bad. No, um, I think I, it at least deserved like a sixty. Am I good to move into dislikes though? Yeah. So the editing is sometimes really uneven. Sometimes I felt like it was handled really smoothly, and then other times it was just kind of like jump cutting. I don't have specific examples. I just remember this being like a a thought that I was having while we were watching it. Like, I don't love the way this is edited all the time. But other times, like, there's nice wide shots of them riding horses or, like, the manor that look really good. Yeah. But then there's other other times where I'm like, hmm. I guess that's, that's more cinematography than editing. It, it's mostly, like, the transitions, I feel like, that okay. I noticed that I didn't like. But... yeah. Um, let's see. Sometimes the dialogue was just way too cheesy. And I know that's what they were going for in some cases. Like the, there's another guest besides Jennifer Coolidge and Jane who is just obnoxious. And I know that's how she's supposed to be, but there's a scene where she's like overacting to the nth degree. 
and, and it's supposed to be that way. Like you're supposed to laugh at it, but I didn't think it was funny. I was just like the part where they're just talking in the drawing room. Yeah, I was just like this. This is just obnoxious. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Yeah, I only thought it was funny. Yeah, that that didn't work for me. Oh, because she's like, because we're boozum sisters. Yeah, or is that how she said it? Boozum. Boozum. Yeah, boozum sisters. sisters. And then like she like threatens Jane basically, right? And like very lightly puts her hand on her throat. And he's like, we wouldn't want anyone to find out, would we? Right. And then, like, she leaves, and you can see her, like, jumping from Flouncing. foot to foot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> yeah. It just felt, to me, that felt like, I thought that kind of thing was funny when we were doing, like, school plays back in, like, middle school or high school. We had a few classes where they made us do, like, little play adaptations of A Midsummer Night's Dream or whatever. Mm-hmm that's the kind of thing that I would have thought was hilarious back then. But like now I'm a little more jaded and cynical and just, you know, I hate fun now. That's true. Right. You do hate fun. Something that I really didn't like is before Jane goes on this trip, she basically gets sexually assaulted in her office. Oh yeah. And like, nobody says anything. Yeah. I put this as a dislike as well. And then she gets sexually assaulted on this experience. She gets groped, and then the guy, like, tries to take advantage of her, and she's a ninja. Well, there is a consequence to that one. Yeah. But, like, the first one, I I put weirdly mustache-twirling workplace a sexual assault man. Yeah. And he's just, like, over the top, like, just saying these really misogynistic things, like, slaps her butt you know, corners her in her cubicle so she can't get out. And he's not doing this, like, after hours, like... It's the middle of the workday. There's witnesses everywhere. Uh, I was like, there's no way that this guy would do that with all these witnesses. I just don't feel like that's realistic. Then I also wrote, why didn't Jane stab him with a letter opener or something? Seriously. There's, like, no reaction. She has no reaction. She just leaves. Yeah. Um, So that was kind of weird. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think that needs to be mentioned because I really hated that. And it was pointless, too. Yeah. Like, there was really no need for it to be in there. Well, and, like, throughout the movie, they talk about how she's, like, never been in love or, like, she's had... What did they say? It was, like, a poor go at love or something like that because she's, like, 30 and not married. Yeah. Even though, what's the issue? Yeah. 30 is not that old. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, okay. So, what... Would you um, rate this? I'm, la- I'm rating it six lady bitch owners out of ten. Nice. I think it's on that. It toes that line of being, this is kind of how I see ratings, although, you know, I'm probably going to go back on this later. So don't quote me, but quote me for now. You said six. But a five is like, I'm pretty much indifferent to this movie. A four would be, I slightly don't like it. And then a six would be, I slightly like it. That's how I feel about this one. I slightly like it. So I'm giving it a six, you know? Yeah. Well, with that. But also that's not fair because I would give, like me personally, I would, I don't want to watch Avatar ever again, but I know that it deserves more than a five. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a little bit mercurial, but that's how I feel about this one. Okay. For me, that's the same, except bump down the one. Oh. Five is, I kind of like it. Okay. And, like, but, like, also, I don't ever have to watch it again. Yeah. Like, I don't ever feel the need to watch this again. And so I think I would give this five gays trapped 
out of 10. <laughs> Five gays trapped out of mm -hmm. 10. Nice. <clears throat> okay, so to the spoiler thing. Um, so this is a spoiler. Yeah. Skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. Right. Um, so there's a rule in this, in Austin Land, that's the name of the attraction, Austin Land, um, that you're not allowed to bring any modern technologies, any modern anything into Austin Land, right? And Jane brings her phone for some reason. I was trying to figure this out. Like, why did she even need to bring her phone? She only uses it one time. She, like, calls her best friend back home, and that's all she ever uses her phone for. Mm -hmm. So, like, A, at least in the context of the movie, it seemed kind of dumb for her to bring her phone. It seemed contrived, just like a an excuse to create drama, drama later yeah. in the movie because she never uses her phone. Yeah. You know, apart from that one phone yeah. call. Yeah. My gripe, my big gripe, is there's inconsistencies in the rules for Madame Bitch Owner. So, I, you know, no modern things allowed, but it's revealed later. There's this, uh, this stable boy named Nick. and Martin? Oh, sorry, Martin. I don't know why I thought it was Nick. Um, his name's Martin in the movie, and he's the one that Jane initially has a romance with because he's like very much disillusioned with the people that come through Austin land and he thinks they're all fake and he doesn't like them. And so, you know, Jane one night is walking around and she hears him playing saxophone and listening to like easy listening, modern, easy listening music. And she goes in and he's like, come inside before Madam bitch owner sees this and confiscates my saxophone and my tape deck and all that. But it's later revealed that like he was a plant and he was acting the whole time because Jane paid for the crappy package. He becomes her, her romance option. Yeah. So she's okay with him using a tape deck and a saxophone, you know, to, to act and get Jane know. to like him. But no, I think she did because it's revealed the whole time that he was supposed to be you know, he was supposed to yeah. hate on everybody. He was supposed to hate on everybody for liking Austin. He was supposed to be this character. So maybe. We're done. So she's fine with it, but then as soon as she finds Jane's phone, it's it's a problem. I didn't like that. I thought it yeah. was, there was an inconsistency. I feel on. like in the book, Martin was allowed to have these things or like it was a secret to make Jane feel more at ease. And like, they probably just didn't do a good job of that in the movie. But I think, and I don't remember about the phone, what happened, but I think yeah. like the technology that he uses was like kind of allowed because like, but then it's why, already a, why is against it a the rules that she's like having a fling with him. And so this just makes it feel even more naughty. I don't know. So it wasn't planned the whole time. It was. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that was not very well written and established. That's okay. my gripe. All right. Well. Yeah, that's all I got. Okay, um, so we are going to be doing three books today. I read two Jules Verne books, and then Micah read a book. I'm just going to keep it light. Keep it easy. Keep it easy listening over here. Keep it fresh. That's right. And the first Jules Verne book that I read was Journey to the Center of the Earth. This was published in 1864. So the summary is, when Professor Lidenbrock discovers an old Icelandic manuscript written by the famed savant Arnisaknusum, 
What? He attempts to crack the mysterious cipher he finds within the book. His young nephew and apprentice, Axel, succeeds in interpreting the cipher, and the note indicates a path that the famed Icelandic explorer took years before into the very center of the earth. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. So this 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 uh, Arnisagnusum. Is that how they say it in the book? Yeah, in, in the recording <laughs> yeah. at least. Um, say it again. Arnisagnusum. <laughs> he found a path to the center of the earth, oh. and, and he wrote it in this on this note, and he, um, you know, he um, what's it called? Encrypted it, and they broke the cipher and figured out where to go to get to the path that he followed. And because Professor Lidenbrock is such a science nerd, he really wants to go do it. And Axel, Axel figures out the cipher and he doesn't want to tell him because he knows that he's going to want to go, that they're going to go. And it's really dangerous. Right. But they go. And uh, yeah, that's what the book is about. Them journeying to the center of the earth. What did I like about it? You ask? Did you yeah. Ask? What did you ask? What did, what did I ask? What did you like about I it? I asked you, if you asked me, what did I like about it? Did you ask me that? You didn't give me a chance. Well, will you? What did you like about this, Brayden? Oh, wow. Funny you should ask. I actually have a list of likes here. Oh, good. Um, so, lots of science. Uh, there's a lot of geology and chemistry and biology that Jules Verne writes into this book. And I'm not an expert in any of those fields, but like... It's, it's interesting, super cool, and it seems like he knows what he's talking about. And from what I've gleaned, you know, reading about how, how real geologists and chemists and biologists feel about this book, the, the science information he weaves into this story is to, to like totally believable. So it lends this credibility to, you know, the fiction of this book, of them actually going into the center of the earth. So I thought that was really cool. The characters are likable. Even Professor Lidenbrock, who's just this obnoxiously intellectual guy, but he's also really caring and determined. He cares a lot about his nephew, and he's very determined to discover things and, you know, be a great man and all that. So I liked him. Axel is kind of a complainy baby, but he's mostly a good sport. Okay. Most of the times he's a complainy baby. He has a good reason. How old? Oh, he has a good reason to be a complaining baby. Yeah, like they're almost dead. They they, <laughs> they they run out of food. They run out of water. But he's like, we should go back. And the professor's like, go back? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound unreasonable to me. <laughs> you don't know if you're going to find water down here. Um, Uncle, we yeah. need to go back. We need water. I need munchie. He almost died. Like, Axel oh, almost dies multiple times. And um, of course, the uncle's perfectly fine the whole time. Right. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, uncle, I'm wounded. And then they take they take an Icelandic guide with them named Hans. He's the real MVP. He, like, saves their lives so many freaking times. Oh. And he's just a quiet, really big, red-headed dude that just helps in every possible way that he can um hang on okay that was micah snorting a line of cocaine it's true will you please keep that in there <laughs> <laughs> that's freaking hilarious um and this book just captures the human spirit of discovery and exploration so well i feel like you know a good version of it or a bad version the of good it? version yeah. especially like you know sort of the scientific side of Okay. of that spirit because 
they are, you know, they're, they're journeying and they're noticing like, whoa, these are like pre-Diluvian rocks and this is amazing. And they're just like so excited by all these oh, things cool. that they're finding. Um, uh, another like I put Mount Etna. That's all I'll say. Um, <laughs> well said. And then Tim Curry was the narrator of the audiobook version that I listened to. And now I want him to narrate all books. <laughs> so good. I just love the way that he voice acts. Um, disliked. Dislikes. This is only like a little dislike, but I mean, if I was Axel, I would be pissed at Unky Glidenbrock after the first time of almost dying. Because they, they almost, um, yeah, they almost die of dehydration, but they find a stream. Um, they find a river, basically, and they get water that way, and they live, and they decide to keep going. And then, this is very spoilery, maybe I shouldn't say, but basically they almost die like multiple times. And he just, he seems a little bit forgiving. I would be pissed, though, if it were me. But, like, you know, these are different characters than me, so I guess it's not really the book's fault. Um, and then another dislike I wrote is Tim Curry doesn't narrate all books. <laughs> That's not this book's fault. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> this book made me dislike that fact, you know? So I have to give it, you know, a negative mark for that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How unfair does that sound? That's so mean. I'm not actually going to um, knock it for that. That's like me getting upset about Hugh Grant playing a not so good guy in D and D. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and knocking well. the movie on that. Or Nicole Kidman. Oh, yeah. She always deserves the knock. That's ridiculous. Okay, time for my famous segment, Triberty Biberty. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good, isn't it? That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> so this book was originally written in French. Um, Jules Verne is a Frenchie, Frenchman. Oh, he's a French guy. He's a Frenchie Frenchman. Um, and you would think that he was a geologist or something turned writer based on all the science that he's putting into this book. But apparently he went to school in Paris and he finished a law degree and then pretty much immediately became a writer. So, so I guess he just got good at science somehow. Lots of research. Really impressive. Um, he is considered widely as the father of science fiction, Jules Verne. So because this was in the. Eight, 1800s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A hey. law degree and then just became an author? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then this book explores the idea of a hollow earth instead of a, you know, a molten, molten. center earth. Okay. I and, was wondering how that, because the whole time I'm just thinking. Yeah. It's right. The, uh, this is a little spoilery. I'll give it, I'll give it a rating right now. So I'm going to rate it 8.5. That's capital, Axel. <laughs> Out of ten. He says, Lidenbrock says that a bunch in this book. And Tim Curry narrates it. Like, sounds kind of like that. And I've been saying it ever since then. Nobody knows what I'm talking about, but it's funny to me. It makes sense now. Yeah. That's just capital. <laughs> um, okay, so back to the Hollow Earth thing. So, um... Yeah. Spoilers ahead. It, you know, it's generally still accepted that the core of the Earth is molten. Spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. But obviously nobody has drilled down to the center of the Earth. Yeah. So we don't know for sure. Except for when Morty drops a lightsaber. Yeah, Morty drops a lightsaber. But like, you know, even in that episode, it's about to hit a molten core. Yeah. And it's going to cause like a, you know, a fusion reaction or a fission reaction yeah. that's going to blow up the whole Earth. Um, 
but there are contemporary scientists, I guess, that, that, um, like this theory is still alive. This theory of the earth being hollow is, really? is still alive. And supposedly someone has found evidence for an ocean under the earth and they find an ocean under the earth in this book and they travel it today. Scientists. Yes. Like modern. Yeah. Oh, isn't that cool? I don't know how true it is. I'm yeah. not an expert, whatever. But like if, if it is true and he predicted that there was an ocean under the earth, that's awesome. Yeah. Good for Julesy. Yeah. And that concludes. Well, Vern. You remember uh, Over the Hedge, the animated movie? Mm-hmm. The turtle's name is Vern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Uh, he's a complaining baby. Yeah, he is. But this contrudes, contrudes, this concludes Triberty Biberty. <laughs> Sure. And that's all I've got for uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. You want to go, Micah? Yeah. So I read the book Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaros. Okay, so this is book number two in the Empyrean series. Okay. So Fourth Wing is first, and that came out earlier this year. And then Iron Flame is second, and that also came out this year. And then Iron in My Blood will be the third one. And then Blood is My Iron. What? <laughs> <laughs> Will be the fifth. Yeah. Yeah. No, that'll be fourth. Oh. No, what about Iron in My Blood? When does that come out? Well, I named off two books, and then you named off one, and then I named off another. Oh, you're right. I can count. Maths. (laughs) Okay. So, it's... The premise of... Since this is a second book, there's going to be spoilers for the first book. So, really fast, I'm going to give briefly what... um, Oh, hell, what's the fourth wing is about? Mm -hmm. And then if you don't want to know what's going to happen and whatever, then plug your ears and go la 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 la. Okay, so um, wherever you are, it doesn't matter where you are, you should do that. (laughs) Especially if you're at work. You could be in church. I don't (laughs) care. Do it. Why are you at church listening to this? Yeah, it's kind of weird, but (laughs) if you don't want spoilers, then you better do that. Okay. So fourth wing starts and. The book follows uh, Violet Sorengale, and this is like a fantasy, I think. So the country that they live in is called Navarre, and after, I think you finish uh, basic schooling, so Mm. like high school and all that, you can join like a different, different colleges, and there's the dragon riders, the infantry, the scribes healers maybe i'm not really sure so there's different like colleges that you can go to pause why the hell would you ever choose infantry over dragon rider because being a dragon rider like you could die on the first day before you even made it into the college you could die i mean you could die on the way to work the book starts and violet is supposed to be entering the writer's college but her whole life she thought she was going to join the scribes do you think when she walks she'll walk with the whole university or just with her college just with her college Okay. <laughs> that, good choice. <laughs> and her sister, Mira, is like fighting with their mom, saying, Violet is going to die. Like, you're just sending her to die. She's supposed to be a scribe and all this because she's studied her whole mm-hmm. life basically to be a scribe. Mm-hmm. She's a weakling, basically. Yeah. And so she goes into the writer's college. And to even enter the college, you have to walk across this thing called the parapet, which is basically, I think, like, the balance beam thing Mm -hmm. and you have to walk across it. It sounds really far. I don't know exactly how far it is. And when she walks across it, there's a huge storm going on 
So a lot of people fall off and die. Because you need to have balance to ride a dragon. Apparently. But why can't you learn that? They want you in practice to just be at a certain level when you come in. I see. It seems like it would be safer to just have them hop on like a mechanical bowl. Something. Yeah. But it's also like, you know, like the whole idea of like a base camp. Like when you go to Everest, you have to train enough to even make it to base camp. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they're not really just going to drop you off at base camp. And anyways, so when she's cross, she crosses and she makes it okay. And one of her best friends is there. He's a second year and his name is Dane. And there's this guy named Zayden. He's a third year. And there was a rebellion like 10 years before or something like that. And Zayden's dad was the one that led it. And so all of the kids of the rebellion leaders have like tattoos. They call them relics mm-hmm. on them to mark them as badasses, bastard kids, basically. Okay. Even, you know, just everybody know that their parents were in the rebellion. Mm-hmm. So the year goes through whatever. And, and we all know that Jesus doesn't love tattooed people. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a huge punishment. Yep. Dang. Okay. And so... In first year, there's, like, I think you go through, like, a third of the year, maybe half of the year without being, like, an actual dragon rider. You're going through all this schooling and all these exercises to make it to this event called threshing, which is where you walk through this valley and try not to die, and then you have the potential to bond a dragon. And so she makes it to threshing, and she ends up bonding two dragons, which has never happened before. Uh Life goes on. The school year goes through, and I'm not going to ruin the end of the book, but that's the premise of the mm-hmm. whole world, okay? So this next, I'm going to start talking about Iron Flame, and there will be spoilers for book one. So if you don't want to listen to that, skip this portion, okay? So Iron Flame starts, and Violet finds out that her brother who died before book one even happened is actually alive, and he is trying to lead a revolution, because there's these out t- outside forces called Venon and Wyvern, who basically, you know, like um, a conversation vampire or an energy vampire. Mm-hmm. That's basically what they do, but they like steal energy from the ground and that's how they get magic or mm-hmm. something like that. And so it's just destroying the world. So Navarre basically denial. is in denial that the Wyvern and the Venon even Colonel exist. Mustard. Yeah. And. So, throughout the book, Violet is, like, leading this revolution, basically. She goes back to her school and tells everyone, hey, this is what's going on. You can come with us or you can stay. And so, like, half of the school goes with her to, like, help lead this revolution. And during book one, Zayden and Violet start dating. And they kind of have, like, this trauma relationship where... There's this idea that, like, if you go on a first date and, like, the first date involves something, like, really crazy or, like, exciting, that people stay together because those feelings of, like, the adrenaline from that experience is placed onto your partner Mm -hmm. and you stay in this relationship because of those initial feelings. And so this, it kind of seems like that idea and that, like, they stay together because they like having sexy time and then they just fight. Mm-hmm. And it seems really toxic. Mm-hmm. And I don't love that. Eventually, the revolution is happening and the wyverns show up. And 
I don't know. I don't want to ruin the end. <laughs> but um, some things that I did like. Violet is a very smart person and is able to think through a lot of problems on her own. Like, she's not like some helpless damsel in distress. Because she was going to be a scribe, she basically can think through a lot of problems on her own and, Mm -hmm. like, history and all that. Um, And when she started out as a writer, she was, like, this super weakling little girl, but she didn't let it hold her back. And she, like, tried to get stronger so that she could stand on her own and basically survive because a lot of people die in her college from just like killing each other or like just accidents that happen from being around dragons and stuff like that. Something that I didn't like in the book, like Violet has like a lot of trust issues with Zayden because he can't tell her everything about himself. And in the first book, he like was leading this revolution, but he couldn't tell her about it. And she eventually finds out and is really upset. And he's like, well, just ask me questions and then I can answer them. But he's not willing to offer information without the questions being asked. And it's not really fair because she doesn't know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Why doesn't she just know the questions? I guess she's not that smart. But she's a scribe. No, she's a dragon rider. Yeah, I know, but you (laughs) you just said she had scribe skills. so Yeah. Something else that was a little bit I don't really believe is one of her friends is deaf and so she knows sign language because she grew up with this girl but then a bunch of other people are like completely fluent in sign language and you're saying you don't believe in sign language it's not real exactly i don't believe it yeah i've never seen it well it's real i've seen people waving their hands around but i don't understand it (laughs) i don't think it's real (laughs) so it just seems like all of her friends like even though they weren't friends with this girl that's deaf like they all know sign language Mm -hmm. which like doesn't really make any sense to me because there's not that many like why would they all know it yeah there's not that many deaf people exactly and in in the context of this story there's only one that we know about yeah yeah um something else i like was reading online and a lot of people have issues there are certain points in the book where violet like someone gets the better of her uh, wits wise yeah. and people are like that's just that just wouldn't happen because she thought through it this time and then like almost the exact same thing happened later but she just didn't think it through but also nobody's perfect and like the author has to move the story along and so I don't see issue with it okay like does she have other flaws besides those uh... yeah she's a flawed character okay. she's not perfect um so people, people think that those instances are contrived. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think so. So like one very specific situation is at some point during training, they're given this drink that basically takes away their powers. And it smells interesting. And yeah. so she's like, oh, that smells weird. And then at some point later on in the book, someone who she trusts a lot is like, oh, here, like, have this. You look, like, have this tea. You look cold. And she starts drinking it. And she goes, oh, this smells weird. And then drinks it. And then she's like, oh, no, all my powers are gone. And people are like, why would she drink that? She noticed what it smelled like. Mm-hmm. But this is someone that she trusts her life with. And she's not thinking that he's going to do her any harm. Yeah, okay. And so I don't see issue with that situation. What do you think? I'd have to read the passage, I think, okay. to know for sure. If she recognized what the smell was... While she was drinking it. 
So she didn't smell it. She didn't recognize it before she started right. drinking it. Did she keep drinking it after she recognized it? It only the takes smell? like one sip or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think if she'd known, if she'd realized what the smell was before she was drinking, then, yeah, that would be stupid if she drank it. But, like, if it just seemed familiar to her yeah, without her knowing what it was, then I could see her drinking it. I think she was just really preoccupied based off of, like, the situation. But I'm going to give this a rating, and then there's one spoiler that I need to talk about because I, it kind of bothers me. But... I think I'm going to give this nine trauma bonds out of ten. Um, and then this next part is a spoiler, so if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead. At the end of the book, the Venom, like, come into attack, and, like, Venom can create Wyvern, which are basically these dragons. Yeah. They have this huge battle between, like, all the dragons and the Venom. And Zayden is like, there's this one guy who's in charge of the Venom. His name is like the Sage. And everyone's at the castle or at the school. And Zayden's like, I have to go. He's waiting for me. Talking about the Sage. Like, how does he know that the Sage is waiting for him? And then eventually Zayden becomes a Venom because he gets taken over. But like, all of that was just really confusing and I didn't really like it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Anyways, that's it. Dang. So, it Wait, was a good one. What'd you rate it again? Nine. A nine? Yeah, it was oh, good. Wow. Pretty high. Yeah. Okay. Um, second book that I read, also by Jules Verne, Around the World in 80 Days, published in 1871. So, a couple years after the other one that I talked about. Looks like, looks like seven years after. Um, so, what's this about, you ask? Phileas Fogg makes a bet that he can travel around the world in 80 days to his mates at the club. <laughs> Not that kind of club. Um, guys, guys, chill. He takes his new servant, who just wanted a quiet life, named Passepartout, a Frenchman, and they embark. It is later revealed that Mr. Fogg may have committed a bank robbery and is using this bet as an excuse to escape justice. Pursued by Detective Fix, we follow this unlikely band of adventurers on a wonderful excursion filled with daring and whimsy. Whimsy? Yeah, you like that? Is that a word? Yeah, I just oh. threw it in there because I thought it sounded funny. <laughs> what do I like about this book? Phileas Fogg is awesome. He's completely unflappable. He's very determined and he's very polite, just like Paddington would want. And like things go wrong during his journey, which is why everyone said his, you know, his target of 80 days was impossible. Like, yeah, in theory, you can do it, but, like, trains are going to be late, boats are going to be late, storms are going to show up, there's robbers in, in the Americas, like, you're going to run into Indians, you're going to, you know, whatever. So there's no way you're going to be able to do it. And they run into tons and tons of, like, uh, diversions and and inconveniences, but he's never bothered by any of it, even though he's risking a ton of money. Yeah, it's like millions of well, equivalent, equivalent. Yeah, he millions of pounds. He bets twenty thousand pounds that he can do it, and he has forty thousand pounds. So he takes twenty thousand with him on his journey to finance it, and he bets the other twenty. So if if this doesn't work, he's broke. Um, but he's just never bothered, and I I loved how he was never bothered by anything. He's very endearing. Um, this book be funny. It's very feel good as well. I also wrote A Fun Adventure It Be. It is a very fun adventure. In 1871? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. It, it's the equivalent of almost three, three million. million. So he's six million is his net worth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I love his, I love Jules Verne's depiction of American capitalists. It's hilarious. I'll come back to that. Actually, it's a little spoilery. There's a line where Jules Verne says something like the Yanks never like to stop for safety reasons. So when they do stop for safety reasons, it's probably important. <laughs> That's pretty funny. The book ends really happily, which I, I like. It's very easy to root for all the characters, including Detective Fix. Yeah. Even he's likable. Yeah. You know, he's the antagonist, but he's still likable. Yeah, because there's just things that happen to him that you're like, oh, poor yeah, guy. Poor Fix. Yeah. <laughs> he's just trying. He's just doing his job. I know. Um, uh, I wrote Fog and Passepartout are two of my new favorite characters in all of literature. Um, and I know that I've said previously that I don't like perfect characters or characters that don't really have any flaws. Um, you could make the argument that Fog is kind of like that, but for some reason I'm fine with it here because there's something so charming about the way that they handle it. It's really funny that he just knows how to sail and he knows how to, you know, fight with his fists and he knows how to shoot guns. Like he's just this like unflappable English gentleman and all of a sudden He's really good at gunfighting. <laughs> he's really good at sailing. And it's just like, he's so mysterious, like almost obnoxiously mysterious, yeah. that it's like, it's funny when he knows how to do something. You're like, oh, of course he does. Well, he's also just like a quirky dude. Yeah. Because like in the beginning of the book, so I grew up reading this book and I just love it. Yeah. And in the beginning of the book, Passepartout, his first day, he's like reading through his instructions. And he's heard that the previous assistant got fired because he was like 30 minutes late well the bath water was at oh, 85 yeah, yeah. degrees instead of 87.5 degrees and yeah. he got fired for that yeah and then just he's just like a very yeah. quirky dude that needs everything to go exactly right and it just does it, it always does but he doesn't get <laughs> mad when it doesn't no. and like passepartout messes up so many times <laughs> in this book and fog is just like we must go get passepartout <laughs> doesn't even care um but i i actually think that his aloofness is kind of a flaw because he has people that like love him and just become super loyal to him like passepartout and um what's her name uh, auda or whatever her name Something is like that. um they just love him but he's just he's not really capable of showing them affection in return because it's just who he is so yeah. i i feel like that's his flaw but Passepartout is flawed, but so likable and loyal. He's just the best. I wrote that down. He's great. Dislikes. I don't really dislike much about this book. I think that you could you could make the argument that it seems like Jules Verne doesn't really like Asian people. Because he, like, uh, Passepartout goes to Japan. and he well, just, they all go to Japan, don't they? Yeah, well, Passepartout gets there first. He okay. gets separated somehow. But he's, he's, like, talking about the women of Japan, and it's, like, kind of harsh. He, like, says they're ugly. My word. And, like, Passepartout, the yeah, character, yeah, yeah, yeah. thinks they're ugly. He doesn't like them. And he has just a miserable time in Japan, like, can't get food, doesn't like the food. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, all right. So maybe maybe this is just the, the character of Passepartout, or maybe it's Jules Verne through Passepartout. Like, maybe Jules Verne doesn't really like Japan for whatever reason. And then when they're in China, he, like, describes the opium addicts of China in, like, a really brutal way. Just, like, they're horrible. They suck. 
they're just Jeez. addicted to opium. But like, it's it, you know it's hard to it's hard to kind of argue with that because opium's horrible, and I'm sure being yeah. addicted to it is horrible. And like seeing people, so many people be addicted to it would be repulsive to see. Just throw it away. Yeah. How much opium do you have? Three tons. <laughs> I'd hate to run out. <laughs> but like you know, I I could see the argument being made that maybe it's a little bit insensitive or racist. or racist. Yeah. He also doesn't seem to like Mormons very much either, which I <laughs> I don't think that's a negative for me. Like I thought it was kind of hilarious. Yeah. Because Passepartout, there's a part where they're you know in a train and there's a Mormon missionary because in America. Yeah, because they're going to be going through Salt Lake, and he's just preaching to the whole train, and slowly everyone in the train, like in the carriage or whatever, they move compartments because they're just <laughs> sick of listening to him passepartout stays the whole time because he's like curious and it made it seem almost like oh is he actually interested in, in being mormon and then the missionary's like will you join us brother or whatever and passepartout's like nope and like stands up and leaves <laughs> And then, and then when they're in Salt Lake City, Passepartout just wants to leave because, like, the polygamists are freaking him out. And so, like, it seems like Jules Verne doesn't really like Mormons that much either. But, like, whatever. I, well, I thought, I thought especially it was, for the time, they weren't liked. They were, yeah, it was, I'm sure it was off-putting. But I thought that was hilarious. Now time for my famous segment, Jules Vernia. Trivia about Jules Verne and possibly this book, too. <laughs> Apparently, Jules Verne was a socialist, which kind of makes sense when you think about how Phileas Fogg acts and shares his money with people. He's very generous. He's always giving bribes. When he rescues Aouda, he basically, she, she is an inconvenience to his goal, right, of getting around the world in 80 days before the bet runs out. Yeah. But he's willing to make so many sacrifices to help other people yeah. and just give to other people that you can... You know, you can see maybe where that character came from. If Jules Verne believes in sharing the wealth, you know. Yeah. Um, and apparently in 1889, there was an American investigative reporter named Nellie Bly who tried to recreate Phileas Fogg's journey. This uh, reporter completed the trip in 72 days. And oh. Jules Verne stopped, or, or she, the reporter made a stop and met Jules Verne who congratulated the reporter. Isn't That's that, so cool. Isn't that cool? Okay, so this is something that I always thought was in this book because I'd never read it. I always thought it had something to do with a hot air balloon. Because like, on the cover, it yeah, has there's a hot always air there's always a hot air balloon on the cover, and like on the cover of the movie adaptations that I've seen, there's always like a oh, there's always a hot air balloon. Um, apparently, this was made popular because there was a movie released in 1956 of this book. And they spend a lot of time on a hot air balloon, but it, it's really not in the book at all. Oh. So that was kind of interesting. Um, the word capricious sure shows up a lot. Ellipsis, <laughs> I put. That's something I noticed while I was reading the book. Like, he loves that word. I know he wrote it in French, but like, you know, maybe he's using different words that oh, they couldn't that. find a translation for us. And they're just like, capricious. <laughs> they're one of the ships that they take is called the Carnatic and it was a real ship and the companies that owned it convinced Byrne to put it into the book. This is the earliest example of product placement. Oh. So basically Jules Verne is a huge sellout. <laughs> <laughs> the first one to ever do it. 
Um, wow, he sucks. Right? What a sellout. And that con- that concludes our famous segment, Jules Vernia. That's awesome. Um, my rating of this is nine and a half loyal Frenchmen out of ten. Really good. So good. I liked this a lot. There was one thing I said I was going to come back to, and I'm going to try and find it again. It has to do with the depiction of Americans and how I just really liked the way he did it. So at a certain point, they're on the last leg of their journey, and they're trying to sail from New York to Liverpool. But they don't get to New York in time, and the steamers leave that would have taken them direct to Liverpool. So they find... Spoilers, by the way. This is spoiler, spoiler time. They find a ship that's going to somewhere else. I think it's like somewhere in France, maybe Bordeaux. Um, it's farther south, I thought. Yeah, so they're going to Bordeaux. Oh. And Phileas Fogg is like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll join. We'll pay you a ton of money because usually the captain doesn't like passengers. So they basically bribe him into letting them onto the steamer to go to Bordeaux. And then during the voyage, it's revealed that Phileas Fogg has paid off the crew <laughs> and they mutiny and they lock the captain in his cabin and Phileas Fogg takes command of the vessel. <laughs> and it's, and it's like revealed he must've been a sailor the way that he can command all these men and know exactly when to Dude. unfurl the sails oh, wow. and like, you know, whatever. And the captain's obviously furious about this. And then eventually when they're about to reach Liverpool, he lets him out finally. And he's like, so here's the problem. We're running out of coal. I love this part. Uh, we need to rip up the deck and rip up the cabins and rip up the bunks to keep the fire burning so that we can make it in time. <laughs> I'll buy the ship from you for way more than it's worth. And you can keep the hole and just rebuild it. And you'll make way more than the ship was worth in the first place. Does that sound fine? And the captain was so mad about being like locked up for however long the voyage was. And he's like, oh, no, that sounds pretty good. You're a true Yankee. <laughs> That's very Yankee of you to, to, to steal my ship and rip it up and and then pay me extra for it. But isn't he like blissfully happy after that? And he yeah. doesn't even care that yep. like, the ship is nope. getting ripped up. He's so happy. <laughs> yeah. So like he's like on a high or something. Yeah. I just loved the way it, it like depicted American capitalists and all That's they care so about funny. is money and they're just they're willing to they're willing to submit to being insulted if they make money. So (laughs) that was, that was cool. Um, but that's all I've got. And I think that's a wrap, ain't it? Yeah. So subscribe to all of our channels, everybody. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok, and subscribe to YouTube YouTube. and all the handles are at this is reviewable. Yeah. Okay. Have a great week. Bye.